there are so many layers to the immigration story mm. that I would love to see the story be being told in a holistic way, mm-hmm. you know, and not just whether what is our legality and what is not our legality, you know. You're listening to Story Power, the podcast dedicated to disruptive storytelling. These are the stories of everyday people changing the world. I'm your host, Jen Kinney. Welcome. So today on the show, I am joined by Carla Mendoza. Carla is a writer, anti-racism speaker, and immigration advocate based out of Toledo, Ohio in Turtle Island. Originally from Peru, she has lived in the United States for 19 years. Carla is passionate about the liberation and joy that comes with decolonizing, as well as the communal aspect of the gospel. She loves sunflowers, single-origin coffee, and books, and you can find her on Instagram at Dear Carla. Welcome to the show, Carla. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to have you. And in your honor, because of your wonderful podcast, I have my coffee. (laughs) I love that. And it's single origin. And I'm a dork. And so I was like, Carla loves single origin enough to put it in her bio. I'm totally going to talk to her about coffee. So... So I read your bio, but I'd love you because I know bios are always changing. And like, how do you describe yourself in a short little clip? Mm -hmm. Tell us about who you are and give us your bio. Yeah, absolutely. So my name is Carla. Um, I am an immigrant to this country. I have lived in the U.S. for 19 years. This year is going to be 20 years, um, which is so wild to think about. And um, I moved here when I was 11 years old. After being in the U.S. for a very short period of time, uh, my family and I became undocumented. So that's a big part of how I view life, (laughs) you know, through that lens, uh, because it affects pretty much every part of my life. I am a pastor's kid, <laughs> so really? I grew up in the church. Yep. <laughs> okay. I grew up in the church, and I love being a pastor's kid, especially when I was a little girl. It was like my thing. I loved it. And then I in the U.S., we went to Spanish-speaking churches. And then in my late teens, early 20s, I got very connected with the white evangelical church. And that's pretty much where I did most of my ministry as an adult until maybe four years ago, four or five years ago. Yeah. So I, I kind of left for a little while, then I came back and then I just left again. So that's also a big part of how I see the world is through the lens of what I experienced there and what I didn't experience there. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. And I would love to explore that more Yeah, when you're, yeah, when you're done introing yourself. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, but yeah, and then I it's so funny. I went to school for creative arts. So I'm an artist. Um, I never went to school for writing or speaking or anything of that sort. Another thing is actually I call myself an accidental storyteller because 
I didn't sign up for it. It just kind of happened to me. <laughs> um, and I'm, you know, I'm so thankful that it did uh, because of the community that I've encountered through it. Um, but yeah, so that's a pretty much a little bit of my life. <laughs> I love that. And so where I want to start is actually with storytelling, because we, you and I share a great deal in common. Um, we've already established, you know, the single origin coffee, uh, but our love for storytelling and the fact that we're both podcasters. So you recently launched a podcast yes. and I would love for you to tell us the name of it and tell us about the heart of it. Yeah, absolutely. So the name of the podcast is called El Cafecito with Carla, which is the translation means the little coffee with Carla, you know, and the reason why. I chose that name is because when I remember being very, very young and going to church all day because the church where my parents were pastors had four services, <laughs> you know, and so we'd be there way before everyone and we'd leave after everyone. <laughs> and I remember it would, it would even happen in the middle of the week, not even just on Sundays. People would just show up to our house. And I think it's part of like Peruvian culture that you just can show up to people's house uninvited. You know, <laughs> it's not that you're actually, you're not even uninvited. You are always invited. And because you are always invited. I love that. You can just show up, yeah. <laughs> you know? And so people would always show up to my, to our house. And my parents would say, we're going to drink un cafecito, which just means little coffee. And it was so funny because they would say that and because it's supposed to be little, it's supposed to be that it lasts only for a couple of hours at the most. But I remember sometimes waking up in the middle of the night being like one in the morning and people would still be at my house drinking coffee, yeah. <laughs> you know? Um, oh. So that sense of community, I think it's something that um, my parents passed on to me. And then in 2016, when I left the White Evangelical Church, I remember being so terribly heartbroken because I didn't, you know, it was my community. It was kind of like what I had invested my life in. And one day, randomly, I walk into this coffee shop in downtown Toledo. And I say, well, here I am, you know, and I'm talking to the barista. and I say, you think I should go back to church? And, you know, I just kind of open up this conversation with this person. And suddenly I realized that I was having church because I was having this conversation that meant a lot to me, you know? And yeah. throughout that year, that's pretty much the coffee shop where I pretty much had church, you know, throughout the week. And that's where mm -hmm. I would meet with people, um, I would, sometimes it was funny, like I would be there and have like shifts, like I would be there and from eight to 10, I would meet with someone. And then from 11 to one, I would meet with somebody else, you know, and it was almost like office hours, yeah. but that is where I encountered the goodness of Jesus, you know, in those moments where I thought I didn't have community and turns out I encountered it over a cup of coffee, you know? <laughs> So that is kind of like the heart yeah. behind that as, um, oh, as a way to honor community and as a way to remember that community can always happen, even if it looks different than what we thought it should look like. <laughs> when you say that you left the white evangelical church in 2016, do you mind me asking, like, what caused that 
And, and, and like what led up to that and what was that experience like for you? In 2016, um, two big things happened in my life. And one was actually at the beginning of the year, my grandma, um, we found out in late of 2015 that my grandma was the beginning stages of Alzheimer's. And so when we lived in Peru, my grandma lived with us. And my grandma's always had health issues, you know. But then when we moved here, she couldn't come with us. And so she stayed with one of my aunts. And unfortunately, my aunt, and I've been thinking so much about her, actually, because I've been thinking of my ancestors recently. My aunt uh, passed away due to medical negligence, you know. And so... Because of that, my grandma was just kind of left in limbo. And so she lived with, you know, her cousins. And and I know that they tried their best, but we knew that she needed very specific care. So in 2016, my family, we just sat down and we had the discussion of what are we going to do? And we came up with a solution. Either me or my mom would move back to Peru and would take care of my grandma. But what that meant is that whoever was leaving wasn't going to be able to come back to the country. And whoever was staying wasn't going to be able to go visit my mom, (laughs) you know, because of her status. And so, um, but the reason why we did it is actually because, um, you know, in, uh, in James, where it says that the religion that God accepts is the one that takes care of the orphan and the widow, And I remember talking to my parents and saying, does my grandma have any parents? And we were like, no, you know? And then we're like, does she have a husband? No, because she's a widow. And so then we were like, so that's our answer right there, (laughs) you know? And so, of course, my mom being my, and also my mom hadn't seen her her mom, my grandma, um, at that point, I would say 14 years, you know? And so we made the decision and my mom moved back to Peru. And so I think that was a big moment for us because we knew how costly it was going to be. And, you know, like, I think the word costly can be taken for like economic things, but in reality, the, the cost, you know, of this is emotional and sometimes very physical as well. And so so that was a big thing that happened in my life. And when all of that was happening, the church where I was in that moment, I don't think they comprehended what was happening. As much as I try to explain it, as much as I, you know, like they knew that something was terribly wrong, um, I would say that no one really understood, you know? Um, Like, I remember having a conversation with someone and saying, like, well, no, like, my mom's moving back to Peru. And their reaction was, that's awesome. And I was like, no, it's not. (laughs) It's not awesome, (laughs) you know? And I think that also has to go with people not having enough information about the immigration system. So because of that, I think, you know, that was a big gap. So, of course, I'm already going through that grief of 2016. At that point, my sister was married. Um, so it was just me and my dad in our house. And, you know, it was just so different. And my dad and I are so much alike that sometimes I'm like, I think I'm just living with an older male version of myself. Um, <laughs> but 
Then, um, of course, in 2016, the election happened. And I remember going to church the Sunday after the election. And people were just so happy. I never, because when I walked in, all I felt was grief. And I looked around and this church is acting like nothing has changed. Like nothing is happening. Like people are not terrified for their lives in that moment, you know? And um, I even remember the worship set and being like, am I missing something here? Because why are we singing songs of victory? I am... 100% sure that God is okay with songs of lament. Mm -hmm. And so the um, disconnect between what was happening in their world and mine was so different because I am a Black woman. I am an undocumented immigrant and I'm a woman just, you know, in itself. And so, so many layers to that. And I wanted to be wrong about the whole thing, you know? Um, yeah, but I just yes. couldn't see past it at one point. Yeah. Did they know your status when like kind of going back to when you were talking about, you know, talking about how when your mom had to go back to Peru, did they understand what it means to be undocumented and how the laws exist in this country that make it impossible for her to be able to return Yeah, for what is it? 10 years? Yep. Mm hmm. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of a lot of them knew. And also because I was pretty open about it, you know, and even like in social media and, you know, all the things. And I was also a youth leader. So, you know, all my youth kids knew and uh, and the youth leaders knew. And yeah, there was just a a big disconnect. So then when when Trump was elected and you saw the celebration like leading up to that. So for me, I was living in China. Wow. I've lived in China twice now. And this last time, like I came back three weeks before the election was held. And being in a country where the media is really very tightly controlled, I really just didn't feel like there was any way that Donald Trump was going to win. I was confident, you know, I'm like, it's so obvious to me and it's so clear to me that this man is A, B, C, and D and nobody's falling for this. People aren't going to fall for this, right? Like I'm thinking this, but I realized too, like I wasn't in the States at the time and I didn't have my finger on the pulse of what was going on for you. Like, was it surprising to you or were these conversations kind of emerging leading up to the election that made you go, okay, wait a second. Like this is off and these people really are wanting to vote for him And this is what it's going to look like if that comes to pass. Like, what was that like for you? Yeah, so I think there were a few moments throughout the time that I was doing ministry where I realized that something was wrong um, just in general. You know, like I remember in 2013, 2014 being like, something is off here. I don't know what's going on. I don't know how to pinpoint what was going on, you know? <laughs> um, yeah. And then I remember when when Tamir Rice 
was murdered and uh, there was a conversation that happened and in a ministry space and uh, even using that word sounds so weird now, um, <laughs> you know, but uh, in that space and somebody, and this is, you know, this was somebody that was one of my kids said, I'm not afraid of what's going on because this doesn't affect our community. Um, in Ooh. regards to the murder of Tamir Rice. And wow. And I was sitting right behind them. And I remember clearly being like, Grace, Grace, Grace. And at the same time being like, mm. but who taught you that? Where do you get that idea? You know? And also thinking, why am I the only black person in this room? <laughs> you know? And so, yeah. um, and then so actually. It was very layered because I it was like, why am I the only black person? Why am I the only Latina? Why, you know, so many things. Yeah. And so, so I think like I was, I was already having hints throughout, you know, throughout the years. Like I did an internship at a very conservative space, and I, I didn't know that it was so conservative <laughs> until I got there. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so naive sometimes, but. Um, oh. Yeah, you know, I showed up and I remember being like, oh, no, I think something is wrong and I can't say what it is. I don't know what it is, you know? And so... Yeah, it just feels off, yep. right? Mm -hmm. And yeah. it was interesting also because even in my early 20s, I was already reading a lot about liberation theology, but I didn't know that that's what it was called, you know? And Ooh. so I didn't know what it was. I just remember being like, yeah, that makes complete sense. You know, of course this makes sense. <laughs> and so right. um, when I would find other spaces where it, like where that wasn't even being talked about, I remember being like, I think something's missing, but what is it, you know? Yeah. And so in 2016, leading up to that election, I think all those hints, I wanted them to be wrong, you know? And it took me by surprise in so many ways, you know, like, I'm not going to pretend that I was like, oh, yeah, all these people are going to vote for somebody who does not even see my humanity or my dignity, you know, mm -hmm. but it took me by surprise. And a lot of the times it was finding through social media, you know, like people supporting or even defending him, you know, when he would say so many horrible things. And I don't think I, I believe to this day I am still processing words and things that he said about people like me, you know? And so, yeah, like I was not expecting that response from the white evangelical church. I was expecting so much more grace <laughs> and mercy. I didn't really even have the language for this white evangelical church until a few years ago. I didn't understand that did you have that language or is this something as well that for you as you've been like reading and processing that you've developed and, and been learning about? Yeah, I am like you. I did not have the language at all, you know, and I could never really express what was going on because I didn't know how to word it at all. You know, yeah. I didn't even know I was deconstructing until <laughs> and I had been saying yeah, I've been deconstructing for a long time. And it wasn't, I think, yeah. until like 2016 that somebody was like, oh, this is deconstruction. And I was like, 
what are you talking about? That's just like what's happening in my life, <laughs> you know? <laughs> exactly, exactly. And I had a really similar experience where somebody's like, oh, this is deconstruction. And they were like talking about Rob Bell. And I'm like, oh, I don't, whatever. I'm just living my life, you know? Yeah. And my girlfriend's looking at me like, we'll talk in a few years. Yeah. <laughs> that's so funny. Yeah, that's pretty much what happened to me. And even the language about, you know, about anti-racism. I didn't know all those terms and it took a long time for me to even admit that I saw those things in, you know, in white evangelical spaces. Cause it was just, I knew that if I admitted what I was seeing with the terms that I now knew, I knew that it yeah. would make it very real. Well, and there's no going back. Yeah. Yeah. There's just this reality of, and I think about this often, like when I first started deconstructing, it was a grieving. Yeah. It was such a grieving process because what I realized is the the church building and the the church that you belong to is such a part of your identity that when you decide to actually leave that space, whoo, I'm kind of in this wilderness yeah. in this moment. And that's a lot to um to kind of process and deal with. You did go back for a period of time and you mentioned that. So what was that about and what was that like? What did that process look like for you? Yeah, I did. I went back um, because I, I remember thinking, okay, I'm ready to try church again after about like a year and a half. And I've been doing work with, you know, a life coach trying to figure out what was going on. And yeah, so I walked into a church where um, the pastor is one of my really good friends to this day. He's like family. And so I walked in and I said, well, I don't know if I trust anybody here, <laughs> but I trust him, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and so, um, yeah, I showed up. I started coming and I remember being like I'm not volunteering I'm not talking to anybody I'm not doing small groups I'm not doing anything after a few months of going I end up working there and I'm very much still processing that experience yeah. because one of the things that I wanted and that I know that I saw the faithfulness of Jesus in this is that I said Jesus Whenever the last time is that I do ministry in the white evangelical church, I want it to end on a very high note. I want it to be like, even, you know, if I already know that there are a lot of things that I'm not going to agree with, a lot of things that I don't believe in anymore. I want it to, I want it like look back and be like, but that was a good year, <laughs> you know? <laughs> And um, honestly, it truly was like it ended on the highest note possible. However, after I left, officially, I left staff there in a context of the white evangelical church, I experienced an event in a small group that I didn't have language for at the time. But it is now I call it um, the day my soul was assaulted because I that's what happened, <laughs> you know? And so I experience pretty much anything that you shouldn't experience at a church. 
racism, anti-blackness, sexism, misogyny, you name it. (laughs) You know, like the whole concept of whiteness was happening right in front of my eyes. And I was the only black woman in the room. I was the only Mm. Latina in the room. And there was just a lot that was happening, you know? And I was the only undocumented immigrant also in the room. After that day, I knew that I probably could never go back ever again. Because officially on paper, I can say that I was treated very well. And then unofficially, (laughs) I was not, (laughs) you know? And you know, it was so interesting because me being me, (laughs) I had just come back from Evolving Faith 2019. Wow. Two days later is when that happened. And so I was feeling the hopefulness of Evolving Faith, um, which, you know, just for context, Evolving Faith is a conference um, where there is a lot of uh, people who are deconstructing, decolonizing, and very much open to asking questions. And so I was coming back from, from that, you know, from a place where I felt safe to ask questions, where people were, it just felt very safe. And then I go into this room and I just was not expecting that. I would say, um, and I think it was like heartbreaking for me because one of the things that I had worked so hard on was on tearing down the walls that I'd put in, right? Because I had already been hurt by the white evangelical church inconsistently, even when I wouldn't have called it that, you know? Right, um, right. And so I had worked so hard to lower those, <laughs> to lower the wall, <laughs> you know? And yeah. and not only that, I believed that I was in a safe place. And because of the hopefulness that I was feeling, I was like, yes, absolutely, you know? And to encounter that moment, the first thing that took from me was the gift of being present in anywhere Mm. and in anything that I ever did. Um, Mm. So for months, I, you know, like I joke around about this because I always say like, oh, I was already social distancing before social distance needed to be happening Mm. in the U.S., but I was because... I had to walk away, you know, I had to leave everything. And and the thing is that I wanted to stay in that church. I, you know, like I, all of me was like, you know, even if I'm not working here, like I want to be here. I want to see where this goes. And then like from one day to the other, I knew that it just wasn't wow. going to be anymore. Wow. That's really hard. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think I've had a lot of thoughts here, but like I'm thinking about, you know, my own process of deconstruction and like being a person who is white and being steeped in whiteness um, and not really understanding how whiteness and evangelicalism were entwined. Mm -hmm. I had this sort of slow realization 
And I would say it's really recently, like really recently, reading Drew Hart's book, mm-hmm. Who Will Be a Witness, joining the inverse community and, and doing the book studies that we're doing. So for those of you who are listening, who are like, what are they talking about? Um, go listen to Inverse Podcast with Jared McKenna and Drew Hart. Yes. Get Drew Hart's book, Who Will Be a Witness. I'm going to have him on the show in March. But they have a community and they we've got these book studies that we do. And right now we're reading a book by M. Sean Copeland. Yes. And she is a queer, black, womanist, Catholic theologian. And it is so powerful. Yes. But what I've really started to realize is that Uh, You know, like embodied and disembodied are these hot terms right now, Mm -hmm. right? And they have been for a while. But like, it's the word for a reason. Because for me, I realized that I had to live in such, it's like white evangelicalism, especially not knowing what that was, caused me to live in a disembodied way. It's like I had to disembody. I had to de like to compartmentalize things because I remember when I was first going through the anti-racism stuff and trying to engage fellow Christians and I was so excited because like my story is a story of like dreams and visions and and just God moving me. And so I'm like, all Christians are going to be on board with this. Woo woo. You know, but of course I'm bringing in like my whiteness to that, not understanding that there's no way you're going to go into a room of white, you know, evangelical Christians and tell them how you're going to start doing these dinner parties to disrupt racism and deconstruct whiteness. Like there's no way you're going into that and getting a warm response. I didn't know that though. I was like, yeah. And they're like crickets, you know? Um, and then people start slowly sort of peeling away and avoiding you and, you know, and whatever. But, um, yeah, like it, it was, it was really a lot for a few years for me. I wouldn't talk to Christians about it. I was like, I don't know why I don't understand it, but I don't like it. And I'm not having these conversations. And, and finally I read the color of compromise and I'm like, oh, oh, okay. I get it. I get it. And duh, like, of course, you know, like the history of race creation and racism in this nation, of course, it's in the church. It's in every structure and every institution. Right. But then to learn the specifics behind what it was within the churches that actually like created it and fomented it and, and built it. Right. And, and like solidified white supremacist ideology. That was eye-opening. But then reading Drew's book, I was like, I feel like I can breathe. And I feel like I've found my people. Mm -hmm. And to move into the space where, and I love the internet for this. You know, (laughs) you said this in the opening of your podcast. You were like, I've met all these amazing people and I just want to share them with you. And I'm like, that's so me. (laughs) I love this. Because seriously, like I've met so many people online now over the last few years who are literally like people I've met in person who are best friends, you know, like ride or die people. And what a blessing that is, right? But when I first started realizing there are so many other people like me who love Jesus, Mm -hmm. who are deconstructing from whiteness, who are fighting for justice, 
and liberation. And like, we do exist. We're not unicorns, you know, (laughs) like we might have to meet online and connect, you know, that way. But, oh, what a deep breath Mm -hmm. to be among people who are of like minds. Yes. And so if I, if there's nothing else that you were thinking like, Ooh, I want to finish cause I'm on a roll here. I wanted to talk about, so in your bio, like something I really loved is, you know, where you say that you're passionate about the liberation and joy that comes with decolonizing as well as the communal aspect of the gospel. I would love for you to talk about that. Yeah. So, um, decolonizing, I think for me is just, um, something that I didn't know that I was doing um, because as a Black woman, as a Peruvian woman, um, who actually um, I am learning to reconnect with my Indigenous roots also. And so that has been an incredible journey already, (laughs) you know, even though it's very recent. And I think in the decolonizing kind of journey or path, we find a lot of grief um, because it is really heartbreaking to realize how much has been stolen um, from you and then put on from somebody else. And that's something else that was put on is oppressive, you know? And so there is so much grief in that. But I am finding that joy is something that I, so (laughs) a lot of people uh, never believe me when I say this ever, (laughs) but I used to be a very shy person. Um, So I never talked to anybody. I was very much into like, please don't talk to me. Don't look at me. I'm just here to do what I need to do. Um, Wow. And so, yes. And um, in another part of my life is that, um, especially as a teenager, when I was trying to figure out what it meant to be undocumented and, you know, the life that was happening to me because I couldn't control it, um, I struggled a lot with uh, depression. And um, so I didn't really fully know uh, what joy was or not necessarily joy. I think I always... um, you know, knew that I had joy because I'm one of those people who believes that um, if it's the fruit of the spirit, then it's in me, you know? <laughs> mm, <laughs> um, <laughs> so good. And yeah. so I was like, of course I have joy, but I never knew how to experience that. I never knew how to feel it. Um, and yeah, you know, like a lot of, a lot of years I spent mostly crying and it showed up as anger. It showed up as, Um, not wanting, you know, not wanting to be social with anyone. And anyway, and so I consider the joy that I feel now, I consider that a gift, you know, because there is no other way. I love laughing. I, I could be having the worst day of my life and I'd still laugh, you know? (laughs) Um, And so, and I know that joy and happiness are not the same thing. And I always want to make that, you know, difference, but in decolonizing, I found that I have been growing in joy. And I did not think that was possible. (laughs) 
just at all. I did not think that was possible just because of the way that Same. I have experienced joy, you know, throughout the last 10 years of my life. Um, it's just part of who I am, you know? And then suddenly I am kind of like peeling back layers and asking questions about my culture. Um, I come from a very, um, it's so funny, like on my dad side of the family, we have African ancestry uh, through sadly slavery and my great, great grandpa was Chinese. And yes, and my great great grandma was indigenous. So, um, you know, there's just a lot going on. And then on my mom's side of the family, we are indigenous and Spanish and Italian. And um, so there's just so many layers to, you know, to just just culturally yes. and ethnically, you know. And so finding that there were all these practices of joy and all these practices of spirituality that were demonized for so long because of the context that I was in. And so like finally taking the time to learn. Um, Even recently I started following uh, Instagram accounts where they're teaching people how to speak Quechua, which is the native language of Peru or one of the major languages of Peru. And even though it's the official language of Peru as well as Spanish, not very many people speak speak Quechua. It was never even taught to me in school. Yeah. You know? And so now I'm like, Oh, I would love to learn how to speak Quechua and I want to uh, relearn how to dance um, Afro-Peruvian music and, you know, so many areas of my life that were just like pushed in a little corner and when in reality, and I think, you know what it feels like? I feel like I'm opening like Mary Poppins, like her little bag, you know, that she carried where it was like, Mm -hmm. I was hiding all these things in there and then when I opened it, it was like, it just blew up in my face. (laughs) Mm-hmm. Yeah, so um, especially I think with dancing, my dad is a musician. My dad is probably one of the most interesting and most amazing people I've ever met. <laughs> um, but he is, his brain is so brilliant to me because he's a chemical engineer and then he is also a musician. But he is one of those musicians where you're like, are you playing the guitar or are you playing a CD in the background and pretending to play the guitar? And so, (laughs) you know, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And so um, I grew up with him. When we lived in Peru, he was a musician. He was a guitarist for a lot of Peruvian, Afro-Peruvian bands. Um, You know, he traveled the world with them. And so um, I grew up going to rehearsal. I grew up, you know, meeting all these people that people just met on television, you know? And for me, it was like, oh, that's my uncle. That's my aunt, you know? And everybody's like, no, they're not. And I'm like, yes, they are, you know? (laughs) And so, um, but in those rehearsals, they would be singing all these songs that were telling stories. Interesting thing to me was that this kind of music, especially one that I love the most probably, is called festejo. And it just translates to festive. And what blows me away about this genre of music is that it tells stories 
about Ray, their life, but the life that they are describing is about the, the enslavement of their lives. And, you know, Mm -hmm. from like, there's songs that talk about like getting up before the sun and going to bed after. And they talk about weddings and they talk about parties and, you know, like so many things like that. But they even actually talk about like the abuse that they experience. But the rhythm of the music is so festive. And my brain doesn't comprehend, (laughs) you know? But my heart comprehends. And so because of that, when I hear these songs, I'm suddenly seven years old again, you know? And I'm sitting there as people are playing traditional instruments and they're practicing the traditional dances. And and they have to because they were an international group and they needed to travel the world and they were like representing our culture, you know? And so they gave it their best. Like I remember being in rehearsal and being like, this is a full on performance. This is not just rehearsal, you know? And so seeing the excellency in which they did things because they were honoring our ancestors was just so beautiful to me. And, you know, of course, like as a seven-year-old, eight-year-old, to me, it was just like, yeah, I'm hanging out with my dad, (laughs) you know? And now I'm looking back and I'm like, oh, I wish I would have like, you know, done something else um, and learn more and, you know, and ask more questions. Mm -hmm. But I mean, I was a kid, so I get it. But, (laughs) you know, and so... To reconnect with those moments. Um, And it just reminds me of how joy has been, was carrying so many of my ancestors. So many. Mm. I would say that's the reason why we're still here, (laughs) you know? Um, Yeah. So I think that is um, a big part of where I am. And I've been here for a little while. Like, you know, I think one of the things that Western society loves is the idea of studying something, learning it, and then becoming perfect in it, which just in itself perfectionism, you know? Right. And then moving on to the next thing. And so Mm -hmm. I'm learning to just sit here, (laughs) you know, to just say, okay, like, I'm going to sit with this idea like what is this teaching me uh why are my ancestors trying to teach me yeah what have i missed for so long because i was just going fast-paced over and over (laughs) you know yeah well and to be in this faith tradition that is whiteness right it's like you internalize a lot of that oh yeah it impacts the way that you exist in the world and function in the world So I started a podcast in 2018 called Speaking of Racism. Mm -hmm. And in 2020, my friend and co-host took over ownership of it because she is a black anti-racism educator. And we really believed in the importance of black leadership and ownership. Mm -hmm. And like I started it squatting down in my closet, like talking into my phone with no expectation that anybody would listen. And then it got really big, you know, and like tens of thousands of followers, hundreds of thousands of listens. And we got to finally meet in person for the first time, like over a year ago. 
And we had all these plans. We were going to do this, 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 and this, you know, and we were going to be productive and we were going to do the podcast stuff. We were going to take pictures and blah, blah, blah. And we meet and, um, and we all got like a bunch of us got a house together, like five or six Mm -hmm. of us. We'd never met in person before. 